Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessing. Welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz, and I'm dedicated to preserving the legacies of Malcolm X, Dr. Betty Shabazz, and countless others upon whose shoulders we all stand today. We aim to empower our listeners with dignity and self-respect and to make an oath to empower at least one child. This show is co-produced by acclaimed educator and author, Ms. Leslie Gift, and serves our weekly online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience. By honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. Be sure to gather your family, friends, and students to listen online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at Black History University. We'd love for you to be a part of our discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, good evening. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz, and we have a very special young man with us this evening. I am absolutely happy that he is even on a phone and has his freedom uh, right there in New York. You know, I was looking online at all the different articles. I saw uh, that there's a PBS special um, that's talking about uh, the, the incident. And it will give our viewers a chance to dig even deeper into this disturbing case. Um, the acclaimed documentary, it was produced, uh, written and produced by Ken Burns, and it is the Central Park Five. Uh, so now, Allison Samuels interviewed this young brother and wrote a very compelling article on the Daily Beast. And she talked about him being one of the Central Park Five. It was a group of young African-Americans and Latino teenagers convicted in 1990 of severely beating and raping a white woman as she jogged in New York City's Central Park. I can recall looking at this on the news. Each one of these young boys served time for the crime, and the only problem was that not one of them was guilty. So the case sent shockwaves around the country during the early 90s, and although their confessions, um, these boys appeared coerced and, and DNA evidence found on the victim did not match any one of these young boys. All of them did, all of them were found uh, guilty, and, and they were convicted. So without further ado, let's please welcome Yusuf Salam. Peace. How's everything going? Uh- Glad to be on your show. Good. I'm glad to have you. Um, I'm pretty far right now, so I, I wanted to make sure that I was able to connect with you because you are one of our highlights uh, for the season. If you could, Yusuf, for our listeners, can you recap the case and the events which led up to your arrest? First, let me ask you, how old were you at the time? Yes, absolutely. So I was 15 years old back in 1989. I actually just turned 15 in February. 
And mm. basically what happened was uh, what, what ended up uh, or what started off being a normal stroll through the park, um, which is something that many of the young people uh, from the surrounding areas had done on many occasions, uh, turned into be um, something definitely different than what we had imagined. And ultimately um, we, we ended up being accused of not only raping the Central Park jogger but also of assaulting many people that got assaulted that night. Um, what's interesting about this case is that we were the five of us, the one who, the ones who became known as the Central Park Five, were probably the most vulnerable of all because we had not even lifted a finger to to assault anyone or, or anything of that nature, and we definitely didn't rape the Central Park jogger. But we were the ones that were being accused and and, and trumped up. They trumped up all these charges um, and basically um, fabricated the story. Um, to make the public believe that this was true. And it became a situation where most people believe that if it's in the media, then the media doesn't publish, publish anything incorrect. So, therefore, it has to be a true story. You know, right. when it came out with, with uh, you know, before this case even started, there was something like over 400 articles written about this case. I mean, we hadn't even gone to mm-hmm. trial yet, and Donald Trump mm-hmm. was calling for the death penalty to be reinstate, reinstated specifically for our case. You know, and you guys were just babies. Were exactly. all, of, all of you were about 15 years old? Yeah, we had, we were between 14 and 16. Yeah. Wow. I mean, not even developed yet when you think about it. In the grand scheme of things, I mean, you look at young folks now, yes. and regardless of what they're doing, whether it's foolishness or whether they're mm-hmm. involved in something more, um, more honorable, um, they're still young people. And it's like, wow, you know, um, definitely um, amazing. Right, right. So now there were five of you, and, you know, what were you guys doing? How did you all um, come together? Were you all hanging out at the same time in this location? I guess ultimately we were, but the most interesting thing about this story is that the media made it, made it seem as if we all knew each other. Um, right. In fact, the only person that I really knew was Corey Wise. He and I were friends before that. We used to hang out at each other's apartments. Um, I essentially met um, mm. Raymond Santana in prison. You know, um, yeah. Corey, uh, Kevin, I've seen him in the building before and, you know, occasionally said, hey, how's everything going? Um, never really saw Antron before, but essentially the media made it seem as if we kind of got together and concocted, uh, uh, um, um, you know, we, we basically said, you know, we're going to go in, we're going to do this. And that right. this became known as Wild Dance. You know. I was going to say that. That was the first time I ever even heard of the word. And yeah. I remember seeing five young boys, you know, basically. I know you guys were like kids. And to see you, you know, you all, and this new word that I, I mean, I never heard of it before, that you all were wilding and that you were basically friends and came out specifically yeah. to do Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, do you recall the political climate? I think this was also around the series of race, uh, racial incidents, Tawana Brawley, Bumpers, Howard Beach, and Getz. Do you remember that? I do. And, you know, it's funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not, not, not funny from a, uh, a historical perspective, meaning hysteria, <laughs> but interesting right. from the perspective of my name was Yusuf Salam, and many people even today sometimes mm-hmm. mistakenly call me Yusuf Hawkins. You know, wow. um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't correct them because I know where they're coming from and I understand but, you know, Yusuf Hawkins was the gentleman who was um, – uh, they said that he was one of the individuals who um, 
who was, was dating a woman of a different race mm-hmm. and went over to see her, and the people in her neighborhood uh, didn't like that, you know, and basically chased him away and eventually chased him into, I think, oncoming traffic, and he lost his life based on yeah. that. You know, I mean, um, Bernard Getz, you know, um, the subway vigilante that they called him, you know, uh, here it was a situation where the political climate was so 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 um, thick that if you were a person of color, and, it, and, you know, the funny thing about it is that this stuff didn't really change, but if you were a person of color, you had to be up to no good. You had to mm-hmm. be the, the, the criminal element. You know, you are definitely wrong. Um, you know, that's just how it goes. And unfortunately, we became stigmatized as that because some of mm-hmm. us were hanging out in the park. You know, but mm-hmm. the problem was when we went to trial, the most important and the most powerful thing that happened to us was that when we went to trial, aside from the Central Park jogger, we understood that she couldn't recognize any of us, and she had no memory, as they said. She had, you know, awoken from a coma sometime before that. But every single person that was assaulted in Central Park that night, I imagine that if you get assaulted by anyone, you remember somebody. You remember something of that. They had us as being the ringleaders, ringleaders for this whole particular situation. Mm. And when the, when, the, when the assaulted persons came to trial and testified under oath, they were asked, do you see the assailant or assailants who did this to you? And each one of them essentially looked around the room and said, it wasn't any of these guys. You know, so it just goes to show, like, how did, they, how did they trick people into believing that we were the ones that were actually guilty of this crime? You know, right. it wasn't just the, the crime of, of, of what they call wilding, which, is, which was a term that we didn't even use in the black community, you know? This was a term that the white, you know, white community, and when I say white community, I'm talking about white supremacy from the powers that be and the institutional racism as it goes on. You know, mm-hmm. they were the ones that confronted this hysteria and it seized on the fears, as someone said in a film, it seized on the fears that the folks who came from the darker enclaves of society, this is what we were doing. We were roving around in wolf packs. We were looking right. for victims, and this is how we, we spent our time. You know, that mm-hmm. was so far from the truth, you know? Right, yeah. How did your family respond to your arrest, you know, as compared well, to the other? Well, I tell you, you know, you, you know, most folks remember my mom walking around with the use of his innocent shirt and, and being that champion of mine, being the, the freedom fighter of mine. I mean, my mother was a, 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 a professor at Parsons University, mm-hmm. and, you know, she, she never told me this, but some friends of hers had recounted a situation that she had told them about where she was coming from work one day, and she, you know, I think she was walking down 42nd Street or something like that to the train station and the police were following her in their car, and they were on the bullhorn, and they were saying, that's the B-I-T-C-H, the mother of Yusuf Salam, the rapist, right there, you know. Oh, my and goodness. This is, yeah, this, is, this was them following her down the block to the train station so that she can come home to us, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think about all of that stuff, and then in these articles, as I was talking about, the first few weeks of, these, of this, of this um, crime that happened, um, they had published the names and the phone numbers of mm. each and every one of us. So people were calling our houses, harassing us. I still have hate mail. And when I say hate mail, I mean, I'm, I know you already know, so I can't, I can't even go there, you know, like that. But, you know, I have stuff where, you know, people were sending my mother 
um, tarot cards that had the symbol of death on it. And it said something like, you know, Yusuf Salam lived, and then Yusuf Salam died. You know, this was a situation where had this been the 1940s, 50s, or 60s, they would have come to our home, drug us out of our houses, and we would have been that strange fruit hanging from a tree in Central Park, similar to uh, Emmett Till, you know, when they put him in the river, you know? Well, yes, I do. Um, when did reality set in while you were in prison? Um, I know you earned a bachelor's degree. You studied in college, but and and you know I feel very proud of you for what you accomplished in spite of these challenges. But how and when did the reality set in that you were going to serve time? You know, I'm for a crime very, that you hadn't even committed. Oh man, I'm going to be very honest with you. I was so naive, and I call it that because it really was. It was what it was. I was so naive mm-hmm. to think and to believe that this was a the criminal. I mean, this was the criminal justice system. So I started off, and I had the, I made I made a mistake in in recount, recanting. I mean, re, retelling that particular story by saying the criminal system of injustice, because that's what it became to me. Mm-hmm. Up until the time that the verdicts came in, I remember being on the phone and and talking to a friend of mine and saying, "Oh, they're calling us because they're saying the verdicts are in. I'll see you in a little while. Um, they're going to find us innocent." I had tremendous hopes in believing that the system worked, that they were going to see through you? all of the lies. I was 15, mm-hmm. I think I was maybe mm-hmm. 16 at the time, mm-hmm. you know. And lo and behold, not like people who uh, are, not, are not the same skin color as, as we are, what happened mm-hmm. was they found us guilty and we weren't able to go home and prepare ourselves to go to prison. We were put in shackles immediately. Wow. Taken to the back, and we were going to prison, you know. And they they said that they made a mistake, but here I was, 15, when this crime happened. They sent me to Rikers Island along with uh, mm. the other guys, and mm-hmm. they said oh, we made a mistake. After two weeks of being on Rikers Island, we, we were supposed to go back to Spofford. They said we made a mistake and sent you to Rikers, and we were supposed to send you to Spofford. They didn't make a mistake. They were hoping that the system devoured us. And the mm. greatest thing that happened to us was. You know, people think about, you know, the, 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 the way that the system works, but God is in control of everything. You yeah. know? And when you look at how God moves and the, and the master plan and the way the master plan has worked, you know, here we were in the same instance, we were being thrown in the fire, just like, you know, Ibrahim, peace be upon him, we were being thrown in the fire. And God controlled the fire. You know, God mm-hmm. told the fire, hey, be cool and safe. You know, here we were, we, we were being thrown in prison. And God told the prison, be cool and safe. So we were able to not have the best of time, but we were able to get college educated. You know, we were able to, to do a little bit of stuff and, and to read and educate ourselves. You know, so it became a different situation for us, even though it was the scariest, most painful wow. situation to ever go through in life. Yes. How were you able to, to get educated? I thought they cut all of those things out. You know, this is this is very very interesting. I actually am. Uh, I, I I I look at your dad as being my mentor. 
you know, and I was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. I remember him saying something about education and how important education is mm-hmm. and how if you have an educated person who, say, for instance, is a, a pharmacist, the only difference between him and a street pharmacist is education. Mm-hmm. And so if the street pharmacist realizes that they're using the same means, meaning that they're, they're taking chemicals and mixing it together to create other chemicals to sell it, you know, why not get educated and become legit, you know? So right. here we were. We were on the tail end of what the people in the Attica riots fought for. We were on the tail end of being able to be recipients of education in the prison mm-hmm. industrial complex. And right after we received our education, I actually didn't get my bachelor's degree. I got my associate's degree. And I was mm-hmm. going towards my bachelor's degree after the associate's because they said, wow, you guys did great. We're going to come back and we're going to give you bachelor's degrees. And so they came back and we started going through the bachelor's process, and then they took education out of the prison. Wow. You know, it was almost like when you look at, the, the, at what your dad yeah. wrote in, in, in the book, you know, you realize that people who were becoming educated were not coming back to prison. And mm-hmm. the part that's so powerful is that there are people who were never criminals. When they go to the prison industrial complex, they become criminals for the first time. So now because you've been there, it's like the reality of, 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 of the statistics that they've placed on us becomes so much more apparent. And mm-hmm. as soon as we come home, it's hard to live on the streets. It's hard to get a job. It's hard right yeah. now. But mm-hmm. imagine if you're a convicted felon. You know, right. so now Yusuf Salam, Antron McCray, uh, Corey Wise, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, we're walking around trying to get jobs and um, – you know, they changed the job application from have you ever been convicted of a crime, I mean, have you been convicted of a crime within the past seven years to have you ever been convicted of a crime? Mm-hmm. So now we had to, you know, scratch our heads and try to figure out how are we going to maneuver in this reality, you know? Right. And this is, this is right. the stuff we were faced with. Right, and, and, and this is why it is absolutely important to be entrepreneurs, you yes. know? And, yes, and even you know, ensuring that there are educational programs in the prison system. You know, just because someone says that we're no longer going to provide these services doesn't mean that you can't, now that you are a free man, get some of your brothers um, to make sure that there are these kinds of services in, you know, rehabilitation. um, Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to I mean, say, you, you know, I'm, I, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, you know, the part, the part that's interesting, um, especially with the rehabilitation process, uh, prison has a way of beating you down so much. So, I mean, folks have it hard on the streets, but when you come from prison, like a lot of black young men think that it's a badge of honor to go to prison. They, they actually think that that's a part of manhood. And unfortunately, a lot of young women are going through that same process where they think, you know what, we have to go to prison just to prove ourselves. But the problem becomes you, you placing a, a huge burden on yourself, and when you come back to try to be reacclimated into society, it's, it's, not a, it's not as what you think. It. It's, such, it's such a difficult thing. You know, people now, instead of them being the diamonds that God created them to be, they're diamonds in the rough now. They don't even know that they're diamonds. They have dirt thrown on them. So somewhere along the line, they have to be shook up again, cleaned off again, and made to realize you are the productive citizens that we need in our society. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, gosh, you have so much um, so much insight. It just seems that you can create some programs or there's got to be something that you can do, similar to what my father did. Now, the reaction to your exoneration, how did the media and the supporters, this, the jogger who accused you all, um, how did they respond to you being released? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm going to echo what my mother said because I think it was it's so appropriate to, to, con- to continue to say what she said. So when I was a child, she fought for me, and I was going through this whirlwind. And as you, as, you, as you remember, just like everyone else, this story was so public that it was no place that the Central Park Five, well, back then it was called the Central Park Seven, um, but the Central Park Five, there was no place that we could hide. You know, we were very visible. Our faces were all over the place. Um, my mother said in a recent um, interview with city council, she said, um, when we became exonerated, when they found that we were innocent, it was a whisper that she wondered if the rats heard. I mean, that, that right there blew me away because today there are so many people in this country and around the world who believe that the right. Central Park Five were actually guilty of the crimes that they committed. They mm-hmm. believe if they know that we were let go, they, they believe that we were let go because of some technicality. They don't realize that you know, when you see, I mean, this, one of the greatest things about this film is that this film presents the same information that people had back in the 90s and the, in the late 80s. Same information. The only difference is that now you hear the Central Park Five yourself. No one ever came to us and said, who are you guys? Where do you come from? What are your families like? Everyone painted right. the picture as if we were the scum of the earth, the worst right. people that had ever lived and we needed to be done away with. And that's exactly yeah. the picture that they portrayed. Yes, it you is. Know? And I remember the woman um, battered, injured, you know, hospitalized, them showing her and then, uh, you know, on the news and then showing you young boys as if you were, as you said, the scum of the earth. Absolutely. So, now, how, so if, what is, tell me the difference between Central Park 5 and Central Park 7. So I say that, you know, because a lot of times, and, you know, in New York City, we have to be very careful because, you know, one of the greatest attorneys that has appeared in our case was the great attorney Alton Maddox. And Alton Maddox was fighting not only for Tawana Brawley, but he was fighting for many people with regards to trying to get them justice. His, his client, Michael Briscoe, never saw a day in prison with regards to the Central Park Jogger case. So a lot of times when the, when the film first came out, there was a lot of opposition that came out saying, why is it called the Central Park Five? Why isn't it called the Central Park Seven? And so we had to answer that in realizing the reason why it became called the Central Park Five and not the Central Park Six or Seven was because the Central Park Five were the ones who were put through this situation, went to prison, were convicted of the crimes that they didn't commit, never copped out to anything, and went away and spent time in jail for that, whereas one of the guys went home. The other guy got got fearful after we all blew trial and said, man, I don't want to go to jail for that long. Let me cop out to a crime that I didn't commit and say that Mm. I committed it just so that I can get the least amount of time possible. And so it became known as the Central Park Five because of that, the ones who stayed in prison 
for the crimes that they didn't commit and maintain their innocence all throughout were us. That is awful, absolutely awful. I mean, and, and, and you know, I, I always say too, even though, even with, even with the other individuals, mm-hmm. Stephen Lopez, you know, Stephen Lopez, one of the one of the things that everyone recognizes and understands is that when you realize the fear going through a person's mind, in that they don't want to go to prison, they don't want to receive the same fate as the other individuals that they're seeing going through the same process, you begin to understand, oh. It makes sense that you would cop out to something that you didn't do. And, I mean, you know, unfortunately he's not a part of our lawsuit and he doesn't go around and speak to individuals regarding, you know, his involvement and things like that. But his story is even, even uh, is also compelling, I should say. You know, his story is compelling because what happens to most young people, they're giving a plea bargain. And they're told, right. hey, man, you know, you're going to lose this case anyway. Why don't you just cop out to this and, uh, you know, you go to prison, you know, do some time and come home, and that'll be that. They don't realize you come home to you can't vote because you've got a criminal record. You can't get a job, right. so therefore you can't get a family. You can't do nothing that you thought you wanted to do. You have your life interrupted in the most serious of ways. You're listening online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. And we have the honor of speaking to Yusuf Salam. He was one of the Central Park Five who, like so many young men and women, uh, go to jail for not committing any crimes at all. Um, now, is this documentary, Yusuf, is it helping you get justice? You know, I think for the very first time, we really are beginning to um, see light at the end of the tunnel. You know, when we first got exonerated, we were so happy. We were like, wow, we can finally put our lives back together. But then, it, you know, like my mother said, it was something that was whispered. I mean, the same media attention that we got back in 1989 and 1990 was not there. No one, no one cared. No one. I mean, the, the the story that they were portraying and the image that they were portraying about the Central Park Five at that particular point in time was, we're not going to say anything about you guys. You know, as a matter of fact, they were kind of uh, going along the same lines as um, as um, who was it? The the um, the media, not the media, but the prosecutor. The prosecutor was saying. You know, you guys did something, you know, and, you know, we didn't do anything. You guys convicted yourselves, and we're completely absolved of anything that you went to prison for. And then it became a situation where they were saying, after a while, they were saying, well, we're we're always saying it was that we didn't do anything wrong. Right. So the, the same immunity that the prosecutors had, who are people. I mean, you know, these are people who they're saying, you know, you guys are immune for your actions because you're prosecutors. But the prosecutors are people. These same mm-hmm. prosecutors, when you see this film, you realize that they switched roles. They went into Central Park and became investigators. They were doing the jobs of the detectives in, in, in New York City, you know, who are yeah. not immune. So that's mm-hmm. why, you know, when you look at our lawsuit, we have their names in our lawsuit. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a, this is a, this film, this film gave us our humanity back. This film gave us an opportunity to, 
you know, if you can imagine, they they basically had us on a platform. And, you know, back in you know back in the days, like when they had Winston Salem, when they were looking for the witches and they were doing the witch hunts and stuff like that, they had us on the platform with the nooses ready to hang us. Mm-hmm. And twenty five, almost twenty five years later, the same platform is there. The nooses mm-hmm. have disappeared, and now we've gotten our lives back. Now we're able to not be infamous, but they've created us and they made us to be famous. And it's funny, you know, I say that all the time, but I'm like, I never felt like I was a famous person. I always feel like, you know, I'm just a regular guy. I mean, I went through this situation and it became what it became. And, you know, I'm just fortunate now that, you know, God left me with my sanity. God left me with some strength and, and, and the ability to, to articulate this in such a way where I'm an asset to the community now as opposed to a detriment. Mm-hmm. You know, now I can give back and I can shed light on things from a perspective of having been there and done that than just being somebody trying to talk about it, you know. Right, right. And it's extremely important that you, you know, really reach back and help some of these younger brothers who, you know, are being guided into, you know, who are thinking and believing that, like you said in the very beginning, it's a badge of honor to go to prison. Yes, it is. Now, The tale of two mayors, de Blasio and Bloomberg's stop and frisk, stand your ground in the prison industrial complex, has much changed for the better or worse, in your opinion? Well, (laughs) you know, the thing about it is that, you know, de de Blasio, I think, will give us an opportunity to see some real change. Mayor Mike Bloomberg, unfortunately, you know, when he was able to use his money to buy his mayorship, mayoralship, you know. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he's, been a, he's been a mayor for as long as, as people can, can remember. And, you know, politically, when you're in a position like that, you have a lot of power and a lot of juice, you know. Um, but I really do think that with the changing of the guards, with the new mayor, the new mayor, I mean, the greatest thing about the new mayor, if you can imagine this, is that he represents something so different. You know, a white guy with a black wife, <laughs> with a with a black son, with an afro. I mean, this a is beautiful, like, a beautifully <laughs> round afro. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. I mean, people love this, and they they don't yeah. just love it because of the of what it what it looks like. They love it because of what it represents, the all inclusiveness of us as a people. And I mean, we want to be able to bring the humanity back, not only to the world, but also to New York City. I mean, if we can be a city not only that's known for it being great. You know, I'm, you know, the Caribbean in the Caribbean back in the days, people used to say the city's so big they named it twice, New York, New York, <laughs> you know. But, I mean, if you can look at New York City as not being the city of the lights and the glamour and the, and the city that never sleeps and so forth and so on, but you can look at New York City as the, being the city of justice, being a city where you have, have equality, being a city where you have a chance, you know, I mean, this is what we want. We don't want to be in a situation where, like back in, in the 80s, there was, there was extreme divisions, and those divisions are still here today. Mm-hmm. It's just that institutional racism took away the ability for people to call us the N-word outwardly, but they do it inwardly, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a new day. I'm so happy and overjoyed, and especially with, um, with what we heard about, 
you know, um, with de Blasio saying, hey, you know, this case has been going on too long regarding the Central Park Dodger case, Central Park 5. You know, mm-hmm. 10 years we're talking about. You know, we're coming upon the 25th year anniversary this coming April. You know, um, this case has been going on for too long, and there needs, this needs to be uh, finally, um, there needs to be a finalization to it. They need yeah, to be a to this run-on sentence. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I well, know they always say that justice delayed is justice denied, but, you know, there needs to be something. There needs to be something. And he said that he would do it. And, you know, I mean, I know things are always political, but, you know, people are looking at things now a little bit differently. People realize that we have the power. We have the ability when we say that we want to join in the voting process we have the power to be able to go to our politicians and say, remember you, you, you agreed to this. Now let's make it happen. Absolutely. So what are you doing now, and how can our listeners support you? Uh, you so, you know, I'm definitely um, I'm a family man. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, know, I'm, I'm, you know, God has blessed me with a, with a, with a big family. You know, it's funny because I have um, six daughters right now. <laughs> wow, how did you do that? <laughs> How did you do that? How? Hey, I, I told you my wow. dad was my your dad was my mentor now. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, well, I will say this though. I will say you know people always say Yusuf was making up for lost time, but I, you know God blessed me, and you know everything, you know man plans and God plans, and God is definitely the best of planners. And yeah. um, you know it's just so funny that I'm I I can it seems like I'm only able to make daughters, you know. But I, you know, I well, that's a good thing. That's a blessing. That's a blessing. Oh yeah, I'm I'm completely mm-hmm. fine with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I work in the field of IT right now. I work in healthcare, actually, healthcare IT, and I manage a product called Borsera, and it's a wonderful product that allows doctors and and, and nurses and and caregivers to be able to, you know, erase the um the wait time. You know, usually you would call somebody and say, okay, I left a message. I'll wait for them to call me back. Now you can just press this you know device and say, you know, call so-and-so, and be able to get them right away or leave them a message right away. And then they can hear that message and respond. Or you can call outside numbers and get direct contact to the patients, doctors, and, and loved ones and things of that nature. It's a great product, and this is what I do right now, you know. Wow, that's wonderful. So now, listen, I want to thank you for spending this, well, actually we've gone over a little bit, but spending this 30 minutes with us, we look forward to hearing more of you. I know that we are. I look forward to hearing what you're doing, how you're um, empowering these young men and women. Um, I want you to call in whenever you want, whenever yes. you want to, you know, anything that you want from us, however we can support you, know that we're here. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Okay. I definitely appreciate that. Yeah. You know, one last thing. One, th- one last thing. I always tell folks. You know, I I always use my real name on on everything that I do because I feel like why use a pseudonym? Like I'm not gonna hide at all. You know, so I tell people if you're looking for me, and you know, look me up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, Tumblr, <laughs> Google Plus. I'm all over the place. <laughs> okay. You know, but one um, of the things that I'm always yes. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, one of the things I always try to do when I'm on these social networks is try to make sure that I maintain that I give out positive information and try to, you know, at least um, shed light on things that sometimes doesn't get an opportunity to get shed light on, you know. But you yeah, actually I, have a website. Yeah. 
So I'm in the process of working my website out. I mean, I do have a website, but I want to kind of iron it out a little bit more. Um, it's YusefSalam.com, I believe, or .org. I'm not sure which which one of the dot dots okay. is there. <laughs> you know, but we also have another website that we're that we're doing uh, what we're sometimes you know putting out there, which is uh, Central-Park-The-Number-Five.com. You know, we tell people, you know, if you want to keep up with us and and you know, see what's going on in the media or in the you know the lawsuit and things like that. We always post things there. We post things to social media to let people know what's going on. You know, we're very accessible. You know, when people stop us in the street and want to take photos, you know, we're like, wow, this is great. You know, <laughs> stop and take <laughs> photos with people. <laughs> Inspiration. And could you spell your name for our for our listeners? You know, and I see that we have a lot of callers out there. I don't know. Maybe we might take one. But can you spell your name for the listeners? They're asking, yes. please. Yes, absolutely. So my name is uh, Yusuf Salam. is spelled Y-U-S-E-F-S-A-L-A-A-M. Okay. All right, let's take one of these callers. Um, caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, what's your name, Caller. Hi, this is Ewell Anderson calling from the African American Future Society. How are you, Mr. Salam? Oh, man, I'm doing wonderfully. <laughs> Great. I, I was in New York uh, during your time and just really remember that incident and just wanted to say, um, you know, more power to you and strength to you and want to invite you to be part of the African American Future Society, and I will definitely send you a Facebook uh, friend request. Oh, absolutely. I would love to be. I would love to be. Yes, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay, well, look, we have gone over nine minutes. Listen, Yusuf, is there anything that you would like to say before we say until the next time? Um, man, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, it, is, it really has. It's been an honor. It really, really has. And I'm really well, glad is... that you guys have cleared yourselves. That you have, you know, you're, that you're out here. That you are empowering your communities. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I mean, what, you know, I always tell people, Black history. I mean, um, positive history is still being written. And one of the things I'd like to leave with, with everyone is a piece of my poetry because when I was in prison, that's one of the things that I was able to develop a little bit more. And this particular piece is called um, I'll Meet You in Between Venus and Mars. In between Venus and Mars is the center of our attraction. Of those connected to the stars, hardly a fraction. It behooves man to work for the day when this will all end. Life is mortal to follow the way of those heaven sent. Awaken and receive that which will give you life or remain horizontal and never begin the flight. For the solution, I'll descend from amongst the stars and I'll meet you in between Venus and Mars. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I love it. That's beautiful. Well, thank you. Beautiful. That was beautiful. Thank you. I, I, you know, I wish we could all stand around right now and just applaud you. <laughs> that was absolutely beautiful. I appreciate beautiful. that. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Listen, we look forward to having you again. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I'll definitely come on anytime, any time, you know, just hit me up and I'm ready and I'm, I will, I'm willing and able. Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, thank you, my dear, and until the next time. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay.